We'll hear argument first this morning in case 105 on our original docket, Kansas versus Colorado. General Six. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Article Three makes a clear distinction between the Court's appellate and original jurisdiction and expressly grants Congress power to make exceptions and regulations for appellate jurisdiction, but Congress has not granted this same power over original jurisdiction. That's an extremely sensitive clause in Article III. We can decide this case without relying on the distinction you just discussed, can't we? Well, I think you can, and the Court certainly can interpret the statute not to even reach the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and avoid that constitutional conflict. And I think the stronger reading of the statute uh, arrives at that very result. The statute at issue, the cost provision, 28 U.S.C. Section 1920, states a judge or clerk of any court of the United States may tax as costs the following. And it lists six subparagraphs, including subparagraph 3 at issue here, uh, fees and disbursements for printing and witnesses. The statute has uh, two terms in it that are defined, judge and court of the United States. And importantly, one term in 28 U.S.C. Section 451 that is defined but does not appear in the cost provision, and that is justice of the United States. Justice of the United States is defined as the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court. The cost provision says a judge, judge of the United States, is defined as including judges on the Court of Appeals, the District Court, the Court of International Trade, essentially the listed courts and the Article Three judges. On the other hand, Court of the United States is defined specifically to include the Supreme Court. So you have a contradiction no matter which way you, uh, you flip it. On the one hand, it says judge, which does not include the justices of the Supreme Court. On the other hand, it says Court of the United States, which does include the Supreme Court. So why should we pick one, uh, <clears throat> one answer to the contradiction rather than the other? You, you don't have to pick, and, and you're correct. The Court of the United States is defined to include the Supreme Court. But the strongest reading of the statute gives meaning to all the words in the statute. And it says you can be a judge who appears in the Court of the United States. And if you think about it, there's a circle of judges that are defined here and a circle of courts that are defined here. And where the two overlap, where you are both a judge and in the Court of the United States, the statute should apply. What and about that, it? What, it also says clerk. We may not be judges, but we certainly have a clerk. You do. And 28 U.S.C. Section 1911, another provision in Title 28, specifically deals with the Supreme Court clerk. And throughout Title 28, the Supreme Court is treated differently than the lower court. Is 1911 a standalone provision that would justify relief for you, or do we have to also refer to the general cost statute? I, I don't think the Court would refer to the general cost statutes in its original jurisdiction cases at all, or any authorization from Congress. 28 U.S.C. Well, well let, let, let's assume that we, we think Congress can, can and can control this, this, this issue, this question. I'm asking if, if, if 9-11 isn't a standalone section so that you can interpret it without reference to 1920. I mean, I w if your assumption is Congress has the power to do it and has done so through 1911, uh, I, I read 1911 more as simply a grant of the discretion the Court already has. They are turning over to the Supreme Court the power to have the clerk set costs. But, but if, if, if I think 
this case is controlled by 1911, do I have to refer to 1920? No, I don't believe you have to refer to 1920. Why can't you rest your case just on 1911? Because in the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, Congress isn't given power to make exceptions or regulations over original jurisdiction. And in the 219 years of the Court's original practice, they've never referred to a congressional cost provision. Are you saying that 1911 doesn't cover expert witness fees because it's not included within the terms other necessary disbursements? I believe the expert witness fees in this case were vital to the resolution. They were. Were they within 1911? I don't believe they were other incidental disbursements. That's not our position. Other necessary disbursements. Other necessary disbursements. Incidental to the case. You don't think that covers expert witness fees? If, if, the, if this Court determines that Congress has the power and has done through, through, through since 1911, has, has the power and done it through 1911, I certainly would accept that position as a result. However, I would point out to the Court that I think the expert witness costs and the work was vital to the resolution of the case here. If your reading of the statute is correct, then I take it we would have the discretion to decide what would be appropriate expert fees. Is that correct? Absolutely. And if that were — if that's so, why shouldn't we exercise that discretion by saying that the expert fees that are available in a case in the original jurisdiction of this Court should be the same as the expert fees that would be available in a district court? Uh, maybe they're too low in the district court, but why should there be — why should we, as a discretionary matter, if we have the discretion, provide for radically different fees depending on the, uh, the court in which the case originates? Clearly, the Court has the, ca- the power to, to make that rule for original cases. However, the original jurisdiction was developed when the states agreed to submit and ratify the Constitution, submit their sovereign immunity to resolution in the original jurisdiction to handle unique disputes between the sovereign states. And as the Court said in Florida v. Georgia in 1854, the analogies and rules and foundations of law that apply to private parties are not necessarily a good fit for sovereign states. Well, but Justice Alito is saying uh, we have discretion, we look for guidance, we have a guidance from Congress. They've adhered to the $40 a day limit in very important cases. Why don't we just say, Justice Alito is suggesting, that this is a, that, that this is a good guidepost for us and we will follow it. Because what Colorado's position is, is they're telling you that the special master's hands were tied, that the special master couldn't even exercise that discretion. In a bright-line rule that would say $40 per day. We're saying it's our discretion, and our discretion is guided by what Congress has suggested. So there's uniformity in the system and, and so forth. Clearly, the Court would have the power to do that. However, there's only been approximately 200 original jurisdiction cases in the 219 years of the Court. To suggest in, all those, that the rules in all those cases, has the special master ever called a court's witness, that is, a court's expert, appointed a court's expert? And if so, what is the pay rate for such a witness? I mean, courts of the United States District Courts occasionally appoint witnesses, uh, court witnesses, as distinguished from parties' witnesses. Do you know if that's happened in special master situations? I can tell you it didn't happen in this case. I certainly can't speak to whether it's happened in 
other cases involving special masters, so I don't know the answer to that. Certainly 1920 makes a distinction for court-appointed experts rather than uh, the expert witnesses appearing under subsection 3 of 1920. I think the uh, important point to consider, though, is in the original jurisdiction, uh, the Court, in its 219 years of developing essentially an interstate common law in these cases, has never relied on the trilogy of cost statutes that the Court discussed in Crawford Fitting, which is essentially Colorado's position. You have to apply Rule 54D first to have the Court even have the discretion to award costs. Then you get to 1920, which the Court has said is the arena of costs, and only after that do you get down to 1821, which tells you the limit is $40 per How do we have — how do special master fees work? The special master always has fees, and the parties, I think, usually divide them. How, how does that — how is their authority to order that? Sure. Rule 53 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure deals with special masters in the lower courts. It has no application here and wasn't used. The special master's fees, which total approximately a million dollars, just shy of that, were resolved by the parties after the special master was allowed to exercise discretion on that area of cost. Well, what if they hadn't — what if the parties hadn't resolved it? If they hadn't resolved the special masters? Yes. Yeah. How, would, how would the special — what would be the authority of, of uh, this Court to — make an order that the special master be paid X dollars? Well, I think the authority of the court comes from the order appointing the special master to handle the case and to uh, do the specific things. Okay, we just, we just regress one step. Uh, where does the authority come from? To appoint a special master? Yeah. It's an inherent authority the court has in original jurisdiction cases. So that the authority to compensate is inherent? The authority to compensate is inherent in the judiciary. Would you make uh, an inherent authority argument here? Yes. Regardless of of original jurisdiction, appellate jurisdiction, would you say that this Court simply has the inherent authority uh, to, to, in effect, to to decree these uh, these sorts of payments? Well, again, there is a distinction between appellate and original. And focusing on original, I think the Court has entirely the authority the Judiciary Act of 1789, which gave the Court exclusive jurisdiction over these disputes, didn't set forth any procedures to govern the disputes. That's always been carefully preserved to the discretion of the Court to apply to each unique General Six, under your reading of the statute, 1911 particularly, would the uh, Court have authority to charge your fees to your adversary? Attorney, shift attorney's fees? Yes. In the original jurisdiction, the Court would have the inherent authority to do fee shifting. Did you make such a request in this case? Why should, why should attorney's fees be treated differently from expert witness fees? Let me put it that way. Or should it be treated differently? The special master should have the discretion to consider all the costs and the unique circumstances of the case. In this case, we chose expert witness fees. We should have the discretion. Why do you keep talking about the special master? He's, he's just, uh, um, he's, he's just our, our amanuensis. Ultimately, it's our discretion, isn't it? It is. And the benefit of having the special master make a recommendation is we could have gone through these different categories of costs and come up with a recommendation the Court certainly could have learned. I, I take it the usual practice is for the parties to settle this matter and submit an agreed amount to the special master. Is that The, the way it's worked in this case is the special master has provided guidance, like on uh, the special master's fees. The special master suggested it wouldn't be unfair to award them two-thirds Colorado, one-third Kansas. After that, the parties resolved it, just like we resolved every other issue of costs where the special master was allowed to apply that discretion. 
So why didn't — then why are we here? I mean, we're talking about limited amounts, so much more is at stake on the merits. And why wouldn't the parties just say, well, when it comes to special master fees, this is what we're going to agree to? It doesn't have to be limited to $40. You can agree as part of the global settlement to whatever you want. Well, the special master's fees we resolved. The expert fees at issue here, uh, of course, that bright line rule was, was drawn by the special master, and he never was allowed to make a recommendation to the Court uh, to consider that. And balancing the, — the, the remedies in these cases are highly equitable remedies. Would, would you just answer my question a moment ago? Why should expert witness fees be treated differently from attorney's fees? Well, in this case, they should be traded differently because the model at issue that, that the experts for Kansas developed, the HI model, was used to prove our claims at trial. Which you use lawyers to prove your case, too. Excuse me? You use lawyers to prove your case, too. Why, why should they not be compensated? Because we considered the special circumstances of the model. It proved the claims at trial. It was adopted by the Court in 2004 in Kansas versus Colorado to monitor compliance in the Arkansas River Basin. It's the water use. It's applied by the Colorado State Water Use Rule. So it was, it was special features like that that we wanted to present to the special master to explain why the fees should be fairly balanced and divided in a way other than he did. I don't understand that, that to be an answer to why you didn't also ask for attorney's fees. Well, in a particular case where perhaps uh, a order of the Supreme Court wasn't followed or some other situation developed, fee shifting may be appropriate. In this case, we felt the expert model we developed was so vital that it would be persuasive to the special master and fair and equitable to award it to us. Do and you that, know that whether in other — you didn't know in answer to my last question uh, what the practice had been, but — with respect to expert fees in other original jurisdiction cases, has the court ever deviated from the $40 or when it was $30, $30? In original cases, the court has never referred to any of that trilogy of cost statutes discussed in Crawford. But have, have they ever approved a special master's recommendation of uh, a rate for the expert witness that deviates from the $40? I think the answer to that is yes. And, and I would direct the Court to um, New Jersey versus New York in 1931, which was a division of the waters of the Delaware River. And the Court pointed out in that opinion that a, a mass of evidence was presented to the special master. And on costs, the Court said, the cost of the cause shall be divided 35 percent to New Jersey, 35 to the City of New York, and so on. The cost of the cause, I would argue, is the cost to get the case to the point where it was resolved. In the you boundary do, dispute, do you know? Or do you know whether there were expert witnesses in that case? It does not say in the published opinion exactly what the cost of the cause is. However, from a fair reading of the, uh, the water distribution issues, I wouldn't imagine it would be possible to do that without experts. But I would point the Court to the boundary dispute cases where the Court has discussed the costs of surveyors, uh, mappers, geographers, historians, and divided the costs in boundary disputes equally between the states, not each state to bear their own costs, but divided them equally. And these, the experts that are involved in resolving a boundary dispute I think are no different than the hydrologists and engineers and the type of experts that we used in this. Uh, you're right. They're all different. They did a lot of work on this. I, I know they did a lot of work on this. 
Congress has a statute, and the statute is, we don't care if the witness is Albert Einstein, Steven Spielberg, or the local zookeeper, okay? We don't care. We don't care if they did a lot of work or a little work. We want them to be paid $40 a day, period. It's too much trouble to figure out how much work they did. That's what we want. Now, that's the law. Now, Justice Alito said, I agree with you for her argument's sake. We're not bound by that law. But I take it his question, which I heard no answer to, is assume you're right. We're not bound by the law. Still, why shouldn't we follow it? Because in the original cases, the Court has always tried to reach an equitable balance. Have you any example where Congress had a statute which says every court in the United States must pay da, 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 whatever that number is, that's $382.50, okay? Now, despite that clear statute, this Court, for exactly the same thing, paid a different amount. Is there any such case? I'm not aware of that. Okay. Well, is there anything in the, in the nature of litigation? And there might be. I'm not asking a rhetorical question. Is there anything in the nature of original jurisdiction lawsuits that, as a general matter, would call for higher fees to be paid for witnesses or to make a distinction between expert witnesses and others or to do other things that would complicate it? I'm not speaking of your case. You have a wonderfully strong case in your case. I want to know about, in general, in original actions. I would suggest the only difference is the parties. And the, the Court, in its 219 years — anything, the parties are in a better position to pay the money than the average person. I assume, I assume your answer is that, that it's our business, and we don't have to agree with Congress that we, we may think $40 a day for the zookeeper and for Albert, Albert Einstein is ridiculous. And therefore, if it's up to us, we would adopt a different rule. Is, exactly. Isn't that your answer? It's exactly my answer. And you think if, if Congress can adopt a congressional well, — I'm not I, sure that answer is, is, is at all adequate. Number one, uh, the, the, what is there, as Justice Breyer pointed out, that's, that's so different about this case from, let's say, uh, one landowner is secretly and intentionally is stealing another landowner's water, uh, and, and he has no legal right to do that. Uh, and the only way the injured landowner can recover is to hire a very, very expensive expert, a hydrologist. And by the time he goes to court, he's really going to lose the benefit of the damages. Congress has said, too bad. That's the way it is. Because Why isn't it that way with states, especially, as Justice Breyer said, when states can really uh, afford, the, uh, afford it better than the landowner anyway? What's the difference? The difference is the Court has indicated for original cases these are such disputes of a serious magnitude that can affect whole populations that the model case for even taking a case is where the acts w between the states would be a casus belli, a, a type of thing that would lead to war. I, I haven't for seen — I mean, the $40 limitation makes absolutely no sense, does it? I mean, I never saw an expert who would agree to spend the day appearing in court worth being called an expert for $40. I mean, the fact that — I guess I'm just repeating Justice Scalia's question. The fact that Congress has picked an arbitrary number with no basis in reality doesn't mean that we should do the same. I would agree. The special master's fees, for example, for one person, were, and he was an excellent special master, were almost a million dollars. 
the appearance fees for the 22 experts Kansas had amounted to approximately $30,000. So that uh, difference there, I think, demonstrates the very unfairness. Uh, It's not unfair to have a rule which says each party pays his own experts, win or lose. That's the rule, isn't it? I don't think that's the rule in original jurisdiction cases. At least the Court has never said that. The Court has always — case, if we were to follow Congress, we would have adopted a rule where, because the $40 is trivial, each party pays his own experts. Is that right or wrong? I think that's correct, but we didn't lose. And the Court found that Kansas proved that Colorado violated the compact for, for over 50 years by clear and convincing evidence. But one point I'd like Could to Could we do this then? I, I think maybe in many cases that are technical of nature, it might be quite a good thing for the losing party to pay the winning side's lawyers. The Court would have that ability to do that in original so we jurisdiction. We do that, too. If we're going to have them pay the experts, why don't we have them losing side pay the lawyers' fees? That would be quite a revolution. But. Because in the original jurisdiction cases involving prevailing party or litigious cases, the Court has traditionally and historically awarded the prevailing party costs. And if Congress can make a congressional limitation on costs, Congress could pass a statute that says you have to take all original jurisdiction cases, or you can't use special masters, or you can't uh, use certain special masters in cases involving Colorado and Kansas. Could it say that for the lower courts? I mean, you're, 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 you're trying to distinguish what it can say for the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court is the trial court, vis-a-vis what it can say and has said for the lower courts. Yes, it could say that for the lower courts. Why? Because you the, think so, that, that so long as Congress could not create the lower courts at all, once it creates them, it can, it can tie their hands to any sort of absurd rules? I think they could pass a rule like they did, Rule 54, 53, which allows for special masters, and they could, through the Rules Enabling Act, pass a rule that says you can't use special masters. I think you get into whether that — I just don't agree with your assumption that just because Congress need not have created any lower federal courts, the only federal court required by the Constitution is this court. Therefore, once Congress creates them, it can do whatever it wants with them. I I don't agree with that. Well, I would uh, certainly focus more on the original jurisdiction issue here and haven't focused as much on that issue, but — When we award — the, the special master's fees in original cases, do we specify who will bear those fees? Yes, you do. And you do in the cases that have discussed costs. For instance, in boundary disputes cases, you have suggested the cost of the cause will be divided equally. In litigious cases, that they'll be awarded to the prevailing party. We include the special master's fees as part of the costs that are allocated? Yes, and in this case, the parties have agreed to that and never made an issue about that. And there's no well, what, what, Why did the parties agree to it if we do it? In other words, if we say in our orders who bears the special master's fees, why, why would the parties agree to it? Well, in this case, maybe I misheard your question. We, the order appointing the special master did not resolve the issue of fees. Right. And the parties did not agree to that ahead of time. It was an issue to be determined and decided at the end of isn't the litigation. It, isn't it customary for it to be divided 50-50? I mean, we periodically will approve the fees that the special master charges, and then they're divided between the parties. And I thought that they were divided 50-50. Is that not so? Well, as the case progressed, the special master submitted bills that were divided 50-50. At the conclusion of the case, the parties suggested 
uh, reasons and special circumstances that should allow the special master to apply discretion. He then suggested it wouldn't be unfair to award the special master fee costs two-thirds Colorado, one-third Kansas, because of the unique features of the case. And the parties then settled uh, the special master fees with that guidance. Of course, I I think you gave the answer earlier. Rule 53 allows uh, for uh, an order to say that one or both parties shall pay the special master fees. So if we're going to follow uh, other analogies, uh, we don't have much problem here with expert witness fees. Uh, Pardon me, with, with special master fees. It's under Rule 53. Of course, you say we don't have to follow that as a model, but it is a model if we were if we were to look to congressional and, 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 to, and to other rules. It is a model. However, the court has always carefully preserved its discretion to treat each dispute between the sovereign states as a unique uh, dispute, and the court never even enacted an original an action rule until 1939. So, after 150 years, and in 1939, the court enacted Rule Five, which just set up the bare minimums of commencing the action. And Rule 17 today has essentially the same framework that tells the parties how to start the action but reserves all the other rules to the discretion of the special master. It does point to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and the Rules of Evidence as guides, but not binding mandatory rules that tie the Court's hand. What, what is magical about original actions? I mean, what, what is magical is that we are the only Court that is required by the Constitution. But we're, we're not just the only court for uh, original actions. In, 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 in all appeals, can Congress uh, prescribe a division of uh, uh, costs and expenses in the appeals that come to us from the lower federal courts? Well, the court has in uh, 1913 uh, determined that, uh, excuse me, in 1912, that when a case is affirmed, the Supreme Court can adjudge a cost for damages and delay. So they have directed, I think, a, a, a regulation at the appellate jurisdiction, but never at the original jurisdiction. You mean Congress has done that? Co- Congress, I'm sorry. I'd like to reserve the rain- remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, General. General Southers. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The special master in this case found clear direction from the statutes, and rightly so. Section 1821 of Title 28 is unambiguous. It provides that a witness in attendance at any court of the United States shall be paid an attendance fee of $40 per day in addition to travel and accommodation allowances. Section 451 of Title 28 defines court of the United States to include this court, the Supreme Court of the United States, and that definition has been part of the statute since 1948, because witness fees are only at issue in the Supreme Court in cases of original jurisdiction, it's apparent that Congress intended the limit set forth in 1821 to apply in such cases. So what if they said, um, in original actions, no fees shall be allowed to any special master appointed by the Supreme Court? Chief Justice, it would then be up to the Court to decide whether that's somehow an intrusion into your uh, authority. Well, if we, allow, if we allow Congress to regulate fees in our original jurisdiction in that matter, it seems to me that we've given up the principle and we're just negotiating over price. It would not be the first time that you've allowed uh, Congress to legislate some aspects of your original jurisdiction. Congress has told you in what is now Section 1251 that your original jurisdiction is not entirely exclusive. Only state versus state is exclusive, 
and all the rest of your original jurisdiction is non-exclusive. Isn't this an area, though, where we should be particularly sensitive? In other words, one reason that we were given original jurisdiction in these cases is that the states were afraid of what Congress would do in its own courts, the courts it set up, might set up under the Constitution. I, I think it'd be surprising if you told the states at the framing that Congress gets to regulate this original jurisdiction where you, for example, can sue the federal government that uh, I, I think that would be surprising. It would not be regarded by them as a significant safeguard. Chief Justice, if it was such a sensitive issue, why is it we're now in 2008 and this Court has never decided to enact any kind of rules? Uh, but we don't know, do, General Southers, do we know what has happened in past original jurisdiction cases? And maybe it hasn't come up because other special masters have said, yeah, we'll give the expert witness a reasonable fee for services commensurate with the qualifications and the work that the expert has done. We don't know that that hasn't happened in the past, do we? Justice Ginsburg, um, we, the, the, we looked at it very carefully, and it's difficult to research, but we could not find an original jurisdiction case where there was an award of, a, of a witness fees uh, outside the, uh, this $40 per day limitation. Did you find any cases where the special master had appointed his own witness as distinguished from the parties? Uh, no, we did not. But but you, but you recognize that if the special master appointed a witness for the court, that that witness would be paid um, a compensatory fee. Whatever the special master determined was appropriate, that's correct. Now, in, in a case like this one, where the nature of the work that the expert did seemed to be very helpful to both sides, isn't it odd that the special master chose a court expert, that expert would be compensated fairly, but if you have one party calls an expert who renders great service to the court, to both sides, doesn't get compensated. Isn't that an anomaly? The special master, Justice Ginsburg, found clear direction from the statute and did not believe that he had an option in the matter. If you're talking about the unfairness of it, uh, number one, uh, this situation here is no more unfair to Kansas than any litigant in federal court. Uh, and number two, uh, it, it's appropriate matter to take to Congress. The last time they changed it was 1990 from $30 to $40. Uh, I think it's time to revisit it. But it is, in fact, uh, what Congress has dictated should be the compensation. It's not a matter of unfairness to Einstein anyway. I, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the expert witness is going to get his money. That's correct. Just, uh, the they question, certainly did in this case. The, the question Both is. Both sides can vouch for that. that <laughs> The question is whether one side can get some money from the other to help pay for it. Do you happen to know whether, at the time the original jurisdiction of this court was established, there was such a thing as the charging of expert witness fees? Uh, Justice Scalia, I do not. We do know. I don't either. That it's 1853 when, for the first time, Congress desiring to have uniform fees 
began the structure of uh, expert witness fees started at $1.50 a day in 1853. You, may I ask you a statutory question just about the application of the statute? As, as, as you, you pointed out, if the $40 applies, it's because uh, it is, in effect, a determination of a particular item under Section 1920. Uh, judge or clerk of any court of the United States may tax his costs. Uh, my question is this. Uh, one of the items covered by 1920, one of the items that a judge or clerk may tax, is fees of the clerk. <clears throat> Under Section 1911, which relates entirely to the Supreme Court, there is a provision that the Supreme Court may fix the fees to be charged by its clerk. That is totally redundant if 1920 covers the Supreme Court of the United States. Doesn't it follow, therefore, that Section 1920 was, despite its reference to any court of the United States, doesn't it follow that that statute was not intended to apply to the Supreme Court? And doesn't it follow from that that either the Supreme Court's authority is to fix the fees if this is a fee to be charged by the clerk or, in the alternative, that there's no statute on it at all? But the main point is, Unless 1911 is totally redundant in, re in referring to fixing the fees to be charged by its clerk, uh, then, uh, then 1920 must not cover the Supreme Court. Justice Ginsburg, 1920. Um, I'm greatly flattered. But I'm <laughs> I'm <sorry. laughs> Justice Souter. Justice, Justice Souter, sorry. <laughs> Justice Souter. You're not the first to have done that. <laughs> um, 1920. Uh, there may be some redundancies in it, but it's, it's much more expansive than is 1911. It talks about uh, uh, court reporter fees, uh, printing. Oh, oh it is. No, no question about that. I, I recognize 1920 goes a lot further. Uh, but there's no, there's no need in 1911 to say that the Supreme Court uh, uh, may, uh, may, may fix the, the fees to be charged by its clerk if the Supreme Court is already covered by 1920. Justice Souter, I think if you look at the history of it, 1911 was enacted at the same time. There's a separate uh, statu statute that applies to the Court of Appeals and to the District Courts. I think it's like, like 1913 and 1914. So I, I, I don't think that you can uh, — In other words, if it's redundancy, it proves too much, is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. And I think the important thing about 1911 in response to Justice Kennedy's uh, question — it is limited to fees charged by the Supreme Court clerk, costs of serving process, and incidental disbursements. It does not address witness fees. And in does, Arlington, do you think it includes printing fees? Uh, 1911 does not, unless so you, you, don't, you don't think that um, incidental disbursements. Right number. You, you don't think that 1911 would allow the clerk to charge for printing fees? as an incidental disbursement? It, it may, but it, it clearly does not address witness fees. Well, but uh, the reason I ask is because printing in, in 1920, printing and uh, witness fees are uh, in, this, in, in the same sentence. And I, I don't know whether printing so would if you be allow printing, an incidental disbursement. I think you allow witnesses under 1911. Well, I do know that in Arlington Central School District versus Murphy, Citing Crawford fitting, this Court made clear that no statute will be construed to authorize taxing witness fees and costs unless it refers explicitly to witness fees. It is, I mean, if you want to really get a little complicated, see, the, the, 
You have, you have tw- 11, and 11 talks about the Supreme Court fees. And then we have 20, and that talks about all the other fees, right? Okay. So the thing is, you can't pay money in the United States unless you have some authorization. But 1911 gives the Supreme Court some authorization to fix fees. Now we look back at 1821. And 1821 tells you how much mileage per diem and subsistence will be. It says he will pay paid an attendance fee of $40 per day. Doesn't say you couldn't pay him more. Just says that's what he's entitled to. Now, of course, in the lower courts, you can't pay him more because there's no authority to pay him more. But in the Supreme Court, there is authority to pay him more. That comes out of 1911. I mean, I grant you that this is what I'm actually doing here is I, I'm trying to avoid this problem of, of uh, whether Congress can start legislating the details of original jurisdiction uh, 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 rules and so forth. I, I just there's some desirability here constitutionally to prevent ourselves from going down that road. Just so, so I, we're, I'm deliberately being gimmicky. But what do you think of this gimmick? Well, I, not much. It's uh, fair. <laughs> this, court, this court decided three cases uh, regarding the application of 1821. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cases in which litigants, like Kansas, were trying to get around uh, in federal court this witness fee limitation, starting with Crawford fitting. Uh, in, in that case, you held that a prevailing party seeks reimbur- who seeks reimbursements for uh, fees paid to its own expert is limited by this statute unless we're talking about a contract mm-hmm. or express statute. Which part did they think limited it? Was it 1821 they thought yes. limited it? And, by the way, there is a, a contract here. It's the compact between, 1949 uh, compact between Kansas and Colorado. And it, In an ordinary case, if a witness does, ever, does never does go to court but just goes to a deposition, that's the only thing, goes to a deposition, does he get paid the $40? He goes to a lawyer's office. He's never in attendance at a court. But do they count that as being in attendance at a court? I don't believe so, Justice Breyer. Where it is this? liberally construed. What? It's liberally construed. You don't have if to. If that isn't attendance at a court, where did these witnesses show up? These witnesses show up for trial. Where? Where did they have this proceeding? I don't know. It wasn't here. It wasn't uh, in this. It was in uh, California. Where? Pasadena, in California, courthouse. for 272 days. In the courthouse. Oh, what a nice Yes. Uh, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. They show up. They're in attendance. It's not just on the stand. All the time they're there, all the time they're traveling back and forth. Uh, it is liberally construed. May I ask just, just, just one thing on the table, if I could. How do you deal with the problem that Justice Ginsburg raises if a court wants to appoint an independent expert and pay him more than $40 a day. Do you say that's flatly prohibited? And if it's not flatly prohibited, what is the authority for doing so other than 1911? Justice Stevens, nothing prevents higher compensation for a court-appointed expert. We're talking about... But what authorizes it? Doesn't 1911 authorize it? I don't believe 1911 does. Then what does? Uh, The inherent authority of the court. Why don't you have inherent authority to pay expert witness fees a little more money then? Because the statute 
addresses that. It does not address the statute. The Constitution says that no money shall be, shall be withdrawn from the Treasury except by appropriation made by law. I think, I think you need a law to spend, uh, to spend the government's money. But you're not spending the government's money. You're spending the litigant's money. Well, you in the case of the, uh, of the court appointing an expert, uh, it is uh, typical at the conclusion of the case, as part, as part of the costs, for the judge to determine what was an appropriate award, uh, the losing party, what, should, what they should pay as part of that uh, expert's expense. But that's not what we're dealing with in 1821. Well, what about, I mean, no, as long as I'm starting down the road to outer space, why, why not? Uh, could, could we say, look, th- th- they were very impressive models, these people did. On both sides, they had terrific experts, very expensive. And would we have the authority to say uh, to the master, although you didn't treat them as your experts, you should have done for purposes of paying them? Justice Breyer, you are the Supreme Court, and if you found that this statute — I don't want to be unreasonable about yeah, this. If you found that this statute was an intrusion, was somehow violated your, you know, authority as a court, uh, you could do that. But why would you want to get into the business, going to Justice Alito's point? You have so far refrained from enacting your own rules on this highly procedural matter of uh, expert witness fees. Well, we'd want to get into the business because it's our business. Uh, and it seems to me that if you yield on a basic point like this, that you're giving up uh, uh, who knows how much. Justice Roberts, I, I'm not — you have done it before in, in highly procedural matters where you do not — no one here is um, doing anything that prevents your exercise of original jurisdiction, that expands your exercise of original jurisdiction. The cases also say that your original jurisdiction is self-executing, doesn't need any statutory implementation. Uh, but this is a, a, a totally procedural matter, much as, in fact, I think less of an intrusion when the, when the Congress said to you, these cases will not be exclusive jurisdiction, even though they're part of your original jurisdiction. This is a very procedural matter. Could, could I ask you what, what are the fees to be charged by, by its clerk, referred to in 1911? Supreme Court may fix the fees to be charged by its clerk. And then the next paragraph says, the fees of the clerk. Is that what the first paragraph refers to, the fees of the clerk? Or does it mean other fees that the clerk charges, which could include costs? Are the costs part of the fees to be charged by the clerk? I don't believe so, Justice Scalia. They're not. Fees of the clerk in in 1920 says fees of the clerk and marshal. But that's to be taxed as costs, right? A judge or clerk can tax as costs the following. 1911 says the Supreme Court may fix the fees to be charged by its clerk, and you say that doesn't include costs. Boy, it's, it's a messy, messy bunch of statutes, don't you think? Not, not a whole lot more so than others I've seen. Well, that's, uh, that's by the way, comfort. It, it has been pointed out to me in response to this compensation of court-appointed experts that that is specifically addressed in Section 1920, uh, Paragraph 6, compensation of court-appointed experts uh, 
uh, is covered there. So there is that statutory authority, which you indicated there should be. Yeah, but that's taxes costs. And it doesn't say the Supreme Court may fix costs. It may fix the fees to be charged by its clerk, which you say don't include costs. I don't believe so they that do. wouldn't, wouldn't allow us to fix that. Well, it, except 1911 may do two things. Number one, it may authorize the Supreme Court to fix the fees to be charged by the clerk. Then in the second paragraph, it provides uh, for taxing of those fees, of cost of serving process, and other necessary disbursements. So it does two things. Well, it, it tells you how they're to be taxed. It doesn't say what their level is to be. They be taxed against the litigants as the Court directs. But I don't see any authority to fix them, fix the amounts. It's, it's not a very good statute, really. If I may, uh, once again, uh, going to the issue of why I think some uniformity is important in original jurisdiction cases is because so many of the cases are not uh, exclusive jurisdiction, and there is, in fact, uh, a need for uniformity here. Uh, and the fact that this Court has not chosen uh, to issue a conflicting rule, I think, is very significant. If, in fact, you had uh, set a, an appropriate fee for expert witness fees in case of original jurisdiction and Congress uh, came along and said, uh, uh, gee, no, it shouldn't be that, you should be stuck with $40, then we may have some kind of a constitutional issue here. But absent that, I simply don't — would urge if, you not What to if go there. Congress had done nothing? In other words, let's say they haven't addressed costs at all. Would we be able to set what we think are reasonable attendance costs? I would concede that you you probably could, but pursuant to what authority? Uh, you're in inherent uh, authority over original jurisdiction cases. Well, if we have inherent authority in original jurisdiction cases, where does it? How come it disappears whenever Congress decides to legislate in the area? Because uh, Congress uh, is entitled. You've recognized their right to uh, deal with certain types of issues. Uh, I, I find it very interesting that Kansas um, um, cited Florida versus Georgia because that case says. Uh, Congress has undoubtedly the right to prescribe the process and mode of proceeding in original jurisdiction cases as fully as in other federal courts, but that the omission to legislate such processes does not deprive the court of its constitutionally conferred jurisdiction. It, this is uh, something that you have is historically. The, is the substantive level of fees a mode of proceeding? Uh, Chief Justice, I would argue that um, the, the setting of fees is a procedural matter, uh, and it is and, and has to do with the, the uh, mode of, of, of proceeding in a case. That's correct. Is there any? Do you think forty dollars a day for an expert is uh, a realistic uh, assessment of what experts charge? Absolutely not, Chief Justice. Uh, and in fact, of course, uh, as I think Justice Breyer pointed out Einstein does not only get $40 a day. We pay them a lot of money. Uh, but Congress has decided $40 is what they, what they get. Congress ought to revisit it. There's no question about it. Parties uh, pay a, a, lot, a lot of expenses, um, and then they may, be, may or not be reimbursed to the prevailing party, but the prevailing party in our system certainly doesn't get anything like the uh, full cost of the litigation. 
That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. They, they certainly do not. I, I, experts in this case were paid lots and lots of money, uh, um, and they don't even get that uh, when the court has — it's not — at least the trial courts. Maybe uh, lawyers get even more. That's And that's you don't right. get that back either, That's exactly right. right. Uh, Can I just get clear on, on your view of, of inherent power? As I understand it, you're, you're, when you answer that in a situation in which the slate is completely clean, we would have inherent power, you're using inherent power in effect to be a, a kind of default power. If Congress hasn't acted, somebody's got to do something, that's got to be us, so, so we, we would have the authority. But you are not using the term inherent power in the sense of being a, a power which is sort of essential and indefeasible uh, by, by Congress in, in any respect. Is that That's correct, correct Justice Souter. Uh, to the extent that uh, there, there was nothing uh, applicable to this and it came before you, uh, should expert witnesses get compensated some, uh, some amount, Congress hasn't spoken on it, I would think, as a matter of default, uh, you could say yes, uh, and uh, but I you, think it's you, you think there is an, there is any inherent power in in let's say this court just keep it simple that Congress uh, in effect could not eliminate. For example, if if Congress uh, passed a statute saying the Supreme Court of the United States shall not have authority to to punish uh, direct contempt, would that statute be constitutional in your view? No, Justice uh, Souter, it would not be, because then it's interfering with your ability to do what courts do uh, as a, and it's, okay, as a central matter. To, your isn't that a pretty slippery slope, then, that you're on? Because uh, uh, if, if, in fact, uh, uh, parties are going to be reluctant uh, to, uh, to hire the kind of experts that are necessary, unless they think that at the end of the day there's going to be some kind of, of an equitable uh, disposition of the expense, uh, at that point, that starts interfering uh, with with the with the conduct of the kind of business that the court ought to be engaged in. Uh, Justice Souter, it's not telling you how to decide cases. And uh, there's there another case before the court in which uh, Congress uh, uh, reinstated time-barred cases. That's the kind of thing that intrudes on your judicial function. Uh, setting witness fees doesn't come close to doing what if, that. What if Congress — really, you think Congress can set any — there, there's not some point at which it is so destructive of the process here. What if Congress provides that the winning part that the that the winning party shall pay the costs of the losing party? Can Congress do that? Uh, it's. It, I think the question would be, Justice Scalia, uh, is that a fundamental interference with the? Um, the, the court's ability to decide cases, I would suggest it might be. To the, do, do they do something wholly irrational like that? But, but that would be a matter of due process, not a matter of inherent power, I right. view, I take it. I believe that's correct. That's correct. Um, members of the court, uh, Special Master Littleworth spent a lot of time in this case. He's been fair, uh, competent, and conscientious in resolving all the issues before this court, including this issue of expert witness fees. It was the plain language of the statute and the clear direction of the case law that led him to his conclusion that the uh, expert witness fees were limited by statute in this case. Uh, we would ask you to deny Kansas' exception to the final report and that the Court should enter the proposed judgment and decree. Mr. Chief Justice, if there are no other questions from the Court, I'll conclude my argument. Thank you, General.
General Six, you have four minutes remaining. 1920 didn't appear in 1948 uh, magically. It came from the 1853 Fee Act. And the language in the Fee Act was a judge shall tax costs. A judge, no, it says costs shall be taxed by a judge or clerk of the court. I'm sorry. And 1920 says a judge or clerk of any court of the United States. In 1853, as the court has discussed in Alaska Pipeline, the Fee Act applied to the circuit and district courts. It says that in its title. And judge in 1853 meant a lower court judge. In 1920, we have exactly the same word, a judge who can tax costs, and we have a definition that Congress tells us it means exactly the same thing. Under Colorado's reading, Court of the United States would expand to read judge right out of the statute, and it would make the statute apply to magistrate judge, for example, which is not included in the definition, but they're somebody who wears a robe and presides over a Court of the United States. And it would apply to uh, justices, even though 451 in Title 28 defines justices as a separate group. So but that's not — the Constitution not uses the word judge. A judge of the United States is a Supreme Court justice or a judge of an inferior court. Well, and certainly Congress isn't tied to the way the word is used in — uh, the Constitution, no more than the paper I got on my way in here, told me not to refer to any of you as judges. The uh, point, I think, is that the, the Fee Act was carried forward to 1920, and the language is almost the same. The only thing they've added is a definition of Court of the United States. And if after 168 years, Congress is going to tread on the Court's original jurisdiction, they ought to at least have some express language that they intend to do that, do so, or the Court could, at the very least, adopt a clear statement rule that would require Congress to say, we're going to do this now. We've never done it in our history, but now, after 168 years, we are. Not only that, Colorado's position relies on the fact that they did this in 1948, and it's gone unnoticed by the Court any major treatise or commentary. Well, I'm sorry. Said I got mixed up on my dates. The words, in any court of the United — what the words are now is, in any court — is it court of the United States includes in the 451 courts? When did that language come in? In 1948. In 48. Yes. So the inclusion wasn't there till then. Now, normally in the 48 revision, the rule is they intended to make no substantive change. When they did intend to make a substantive change, they said as much. So, is there anything in the history of that that suggests they intended to make a substantive change here? No, there isn't. And they changed, they changed So, in the, other words, the, the language, in addition to the courts listed in Section 451 of this title, that, that, those words I just said, have no appearance in the statutes before 1948. Yes or no? Yes. They do appear before? No. No, no they do not. First appear. time in 1948. First time in 1948, so they were put in there by a revisor. Yes. And there is no indication the revisor intended to change the meaning that preexisted. Yes. Okay, I got the argument. Thank you. And they did change something else. They changed uh, shall to may, and they gave a reason for that change. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, General. The case is submitted.